0: It's another great day for wellness and this is Bones bringing the packs of F3 Nation the latest strategies and tips to accelerate their king and optimize their queen. Health is a journey and requires you to take a proactive approach on a daily basis. Knowing exactly what to do and how to do it will help you achieve it faster. Each week, we are going to be interviewing the leading health and wellness experts, sharing inspiring stories from the PAX, and diving into the latest research to help you optimize your health. So get ready as we embark on your hunt for wellness. Well, welcome back to another edition of the Hunt for Wellness podcast. This is Dr. Tunis Hunt, or otherwise known as Bones in the Gloom, and PAX, I am Very excited to be back on the airways with you this week and uh, really tackling a subject matter that, uh, I'll be honest, in full transparency, I struggle with. Um, And of course, the the topic we're going to be covering today is alcohol and alcohol use. This has been something I've been personally juggling with over the last couple years as far as my own consumption of it, uh, how much. How little? Should I quit? Should I do it in moderation? What's best for my health? What's best for socialization? And, you know, I go round and round in circles and maybe you're similar to myself and, and, and have thought about alcohol and its use in your own life uh, and whether or not you should consume it or whether or not you should not consume it. And I know many of you don't consume alcohol and this isn't even a topic or a subject matter that um, you struggle with, but I would Venture to bet that the vast majority of us are individuals who don't necessarily have a problem, quote unquote, problem with alcohol, but something that maybe we play with in our mind as far as its use, its role in our lives, and is it really accelerating our health to the level that we want it to. And I've really made a commitment to my life for the last decade or so to try to implement uh, strategies. And tactics that will prolong my life, accelerate my life, make my life better. And playing around with alcohol consumption has been part of that equation for me. And and I've certainly went through moments where I've abstained from alcohol. And then certainly I've been through moments in life where I frankly probably overused it, uh, used it more consistently than I needed to. And It's just something I've, I've constantly worked on, but, uh, recently I heard a podcast by Andrew Huberman and many of you may be familiar with him, but, uh, he's a professor out of Stanford, I believe, um, around neurochemistry or neuroscience. Um, I don't know exactly what his doctorate is now that I think about it, but in any way, he's an extremely intelligent human being and he has a podcast called Huberman labs, And he typically talks about lots of different health and wellness subjects. Well, I had really never followed him before and recently came across a podcast that he did on alcohol and always trying to learn more and trying to improve my own health. I gave it a listen and he does a fantastic job of diving way into the science and the information that I highly encourage you to go check out. If if what I talk about today makes uh, sense to you or if something I say piques your interest to learn more, I'm going to guide you to his podcast on this topic. And full disclosure, a lot of the things I will say today and what I will share with you and things that he brought up on his show. Uh, he did a great in-depth view and and deep dive into alcohol, how it plays a role in the human body and, and the possible benefits or side effects of, of its use. And, um, you know, I, I felt like His outline and the way he did it was a great way of kind of also sharing this information. So a lot of the things I will say, uh, you'll also hear him say, maybe a few differences. But uh, in any case, I I wanted to give him full credit for piquing my interest and diving into this topic a little deeper when it came to how it affects the body and, and really what it's doing when we consume it and so forth. I also want to start off by saying that this is not going to be a show about me telling you whether or not you should consume alcohol. Uh, At the end of the day, you know, your body, uh, your health is, you know, really up to you and you have to make that decision. I I will not uh, clarify to you what's the right answer or the wrong answer. I'm going to simply try to provide as much information as I understand it so that you can make the most informed decision uh, around alcohol use yourself. And, you know, that's just going to have to be a personal decision. But when we talk about alcohol, I think it's first and foremost important to kind of define, you know, what makes it unique? Why is it different physiologically speaking when it comes to how we digest it and so forth? Alcohol is what they consider a water and fat soluble, Element, if you will, which that means is that it can, when we ingest it, it can go both into water and fat-soluble cells. Um, many of our cells are surrounded by membranes and and protected from outside things from getting into them. A lot of elements require what they call receptors, and there's receptor sites on cells that limit what can go in and out of certain cells throughout the body. And it's a protective mechanism. Well, alcohol is unique in that it doesn't need those receptors because it's completely permeable as both a water and fat soluble element. And so it can go any and everywhere in the body without any other help, uh, which kind of makes it unique and allows it to have the physiological effects that it has on our body, as well as, unfortunately become the toxin that it can also you know, pose when we consume it. There's three types of alcohol, primarily speaking. There's isopropyl, methyl, and ethyl alcohol. E- ethyl alcohol is really the only type of alcohol that we consume as humans, and that's what we get uh, in alcoholic beverages and so forth. Now, ethanol, unfortunately, in and of itself, it's very toxic to our system. Um, it um, can produce substantial damage to our cells. So when we can consume ethyl alcohol, um, our body must convert it. It can't stay in that form uh, in our body. Otherwise, it just kind of wreaks havoc and, and destroys everything. So our liver primarily converts this ethyl alcohol into something called acetyl aldehyde. And it does that with something called alcohol dehydrogenase in the liver. It's a rate limiting enzyme that it converts ethanol or ethyl to acetyl aldehyde, which unfortunately is also a poison and a, a toxin and will continue to damage our cells. So that must be then converted into something called acetate. And acetate can be used as fuel. Just a quick note on that, though, it's not substantial fuel. You can't really drink. Uh, yourself to a good diet or to nutrition. Um, In fact, you know, ethanol and um, acetyl aldehyde and acetate as it it pertains to how our body uses it is true empty calories. And so what does empty calories mean? It means that it provides zero nutritional benefit to your body. It doesn't provide any vitamins, any, any uh, amino acids, any fatty acids, uh, you can't store the energy. Uh, so really when they talk about empty calories out there in life, like potato chips and sugar, well, even those actually can have some nutritional benefit, even though they're not ideal forms of fuel. Alcohol is absolutely worthless when it comes to nutritional value to your body so don't ever feel fooled into thinking that you're doing anything positive when you are drinking alcohol as it relates to that your ability to convert that ethanol to or ethyl alcohol to acetyl is predicated like i mentioned on that enzyme alcohol dehydrogenase in the liver and individuals have different levels of that. And so this is where you get some people who can quote unquote handle their liquor better than others because some individuals are just predisposed to not having a lot of that enzyme and therefore their bodies react very differently when they consume even a little bit of alcohol, they feel much sicker or inebriated faster than maybe somebody that has a better oper- or better conversion uh capability in their own liver so that's something to think about as you evaluate whether or not you should consume alcohol or not is how well that process is working in your own body it is the acetyl aldehyde that builds up in our system that leads to that effect of being inebriated or drunk and so drunk <laughs> i you know uh Angie Huberman uh, basically said being drunk is a poison induced disruption in the way that your neural circuits work. So I'm going to repeat that. Being drunk is a poison induced disruption in the way that your neural circuits work. In other words, you're poisoning your brain and your body's, uh, your brain's ability to communicate, quote unquote, when we drink and we become inebriated or drunk. And that kind of just hit me hard when I heard that, because a lot of times you don't think of it like that. You think of, you know, when I'm drinking, I'm having a good time drinking, I'm feeling buzzed or I'm drinking and I'm quote unquote, less, uh, less inhibited by my thoughts and thinking. And therefore I'm quote unquote, a little bit looser and having more fun, but really all you're really doing is poisoning your neurocircuits and your body's ability and your brain's ability to communicate. And so that for me, uh, put it in a different perspective and maybe that will for you. So when we drink alcohol, alcohol is absorbed through our digestive system, you know, through our gut and then the body uh, takes that, the portal vein takes it to the liver where that is then converted into that acetylaldehyde we talked about and then eventually into acetate. Well, then that goes to all over the body, to all the cells, because we mentioned that alcohol is both water and fat soluble. And so one of the places it goes and and affects very readily is our brain. And I just kind of mentioned that briefly uh, with that previous definition. Our brain is surrounded by something called the blood brain barrier. And that is there as a protective mechanism to to not allow toxins and other waste products from getting into our brain. Because as we all know, our brain is vitally important. Well, alcohol doesn't need a gate or receptor. It just can go right in. And so this is why it affects us the way it does. So alcohol then can go into the brain and it can affect all the areas of the brain. But one of the areas that it does affect pretty readily and pretty quickly is the prefrontal cortex of the brain. And that's the area of the brain that we use for thinking, for planning, or or the inhibitory aspect of our brain, Uh, what kind of helps us determine whether or not we want to do something or not do something. But uh, unfortunately, this affects that. And so this is why a lot of times when people begin to start drinking, they start raising their voice, the volume of their conversation starts to go up. Uh, you may see people who normally is a little bit more shy or uh, not talkative, begin to quote unquote loosen up and talk and um, be a little bit more social. This is why as people continue to drink uh You know, at a party, for instance, uh, dancing will break out and some of these other forms of things that typically maybe wouldn't happen in a room full of strangers or even friends without alcohol being available. And that is because as people are consuming this alcohol, this alcohol is going to their brains. It's suppressing that inhibition, which is now allowing them to start doing some of the things that we typically wouldn't do as a result of, of drinking something called top down inhibition and so that's kind of how the brain works the brain the prefrontal cortex inhibits some of our actions and uh, so forth and alcohol affects that ability to to eliminate that inhibition therefore we become more impulsive and we what they consider the flexible behavior, you know, options that we choose, you know, should I do this or should I do that, that becomes less and less of a concern of ours. And we just kind of act out of whatever we feel and whatever we want to say. And this is why people kind of unfortunately get in trouble after a night of drinking because they do and say things that they typically wouldn't say or do because that inhibition has been shut down as a result of drinking. Now, one thing I found interesting is that, you know, of course, most of us recognize that during the act of drinking, that we may have negative effects in our body, right? We, we talked about this top-down inhibition being kind of shut off the fact that it's a t- toxin in our cells and our body has to deal with it. And it's putting resources into doing that. And so we kind of all knew that drinking in and of itself wasn't necessarily healthy, but I thought it was interesting that they're also showing that as a result of drinking, you also get negative effects when you're not drinking, that those individuals who are quote unquote chronic drinkers actually have negative health effects outside of the times and windows of when they're drinking. So I want to take a few moments here and just kind of define what chronic drinking is, because I think this is where it becomes less known or certainly we use it as justification on whether or not we have a drinking problem or not. I know I certainly did. So what the research is showing and and how they define a chronic drinkers is someone who consumes seven to 14 drinks on average a week. So once again, chronic drinkers are someone who consumes seven to fourteen drinks in an entire week. So that could be a single drink every night. That could be, you know, uh, having all your drinks on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. You know, seven to fourteen drinks uh, during that time frame, and and so forth. It can be kind of a different, but on average. That seven to 14 drinks. And that kind of hit me across the face because I think a lot of times we think, well, if I'm not drinking every night or if I'm only having a drink, you know, most nights a week, then I am then I don't have a drinking issue or I don't have a drinking problem that my body's sufficiently processing this and I'm going to be fine and going to be healthy. But that's not what they're showing. They're showing that uh, even those individuals who have just seven to 14, which may be a lot for some people, but those individuals who are averaging seven to 14 drinks a week are considered uh, chronic drinkers. Now, of course, there's those individuals who consume a lot more than that. And, you know, that's a different category. And then, of course, there's those individuals that rarely drink at all or never drink at all. and, And that's another category. But anyway, those individuals that are chronic drinkers, which, probably if we polled most Americans who uh, consider themselves drinkers, so someone who consumes alcohol, most individuals probably fit into the category of seven to 14 drinks on average per week. They found that not only do they have these inhibition changes or these behavior changes um, while they're drinking, but during the days that they're not drinking, it also has been affected. So overall, you're changing the neural chemistry and the neuro um, capability of your brain just by using alcohol on, you know, a level of seven to 14 drinks on average per week, which I thought was kind of crazy. It says that it reinforces impulsive and habitual behaviors, even when they're not drinking um, because that top-down inhibition has been somewhat permanently changed instead of just at the time of drinking. Now, the good news is, if you're willing to stop drinking or really reduce it, and, and really, when I say reduce it, like stop altogether for a couple months, two to six months, for instance, you can have those neurocircuits repaired. So not all is lost. If you're listening to this, you're like, oh my gosh, I've been drinking one drink a night on average forever. You can reverse some of that neuro damage that could have been done up to this point by abstaining from alcohol for several months. Now, if you are somebody who, you know, have really destroyed their body because of chronic alcohol abuse, uh, true alcoholism, maybe not as well of a rebound or, or opportunity to heal, but those of us who maybe have drink heavier at moments in time, let's say college, for instance, and then we back way down or we even get to the point where we choose to abstain from alcohol for a long period of time, we can retrain those neuro circuits as well. So I want to kind of cover a little bit about um, the neurochemical effects of alcohol. And, and again, this is kind of those individuals with that one to two drinks a night on average when we drink, it changes the release of a neurotransmitter called serotonin. And serotonin is responsible for mood and well-being, how we see ourselves, for instance. And so acetaldehyde, which remember is the conversion of ethyl alcohol as a result of, you know, acetyl or alcohol dehydrogenase in the liver, acetylaldehyde acts like a toxin at the connection of Serotogeneric neurons. So it, again, disrupts those mood circuits. And so how that works effectively is when we drink alcohol, our serotonin increases initially. And this is why a lot of times when we first take that first drink or that first drink of the day or night or whatever it is, we kind of get this little buzz. We get this happy feeling. We get this you know, mood and improvement in the way we feel and so forth. And so that's because that serotonin is getting released and increased as a result of that initial intake of alcohol. Now, what unfortunately occurs, however, is that subsides after that initial hit that then reverses and goes the opposite uh, direction and then becomes hypoactive, which then makes us feel less alert decreases our mood and what most of us do then is we go and get that second drink in hopes of re creating that mood hit so we have a drink we're feeling pretty good we're buzzing whatever that begins to wear off we start to feel drowsy we start to 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 feel less energetic and so we're like oh man i need another drink so you go and you grab another drink And that is, again, in hopes to kind of boosting that um, serotonin level back up. Now, unfortunately, what they have shown is that you can never, ever get back to that original hit that you got the first time. So when you go get that second drink, although you have a quote-unquote second boost, it's going to be less than what you experienced on the first boost. And then more importantly, you're going to have a bigger drop than you would have had had you quit drinking. And so you're just kind of delaying the inevitable. And so this is why the more someone drinks over the course of time, it's certainly in an individual setting, the worse they're going to be eventually, as far as in the evening, or certainly in the next morning, as far as how they feel. Now, there are some gene variants I thought I found very interesting as far as kind of how people react to alcohol. There are some individuals who, as they continue to drink throughout the night, actually kind of stay alert and they stay energetic. They become these quote unquote people, uh, life of the party, if you will. So if if you know somebody or you're, you're that person yourself that you know, basically, uh, maybe overall, you're a, a, a pretty mellow or, 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 or uh, passive person, but then you start drinking, and then you become this quote, unquote, life of the party type of personality, that usually means that you have a high affinity to the capability of converting that alcohol, um, that ethyl alcohol into acetate, uh, eventually acetaldehyde, and then acetate, but it also kind of shows that maybe you have that predisposition or predisposition rather of being an alcoholic. So those individuals you got to be kind of careful with, or if that's you, you got to be careful with because you're more prone to be developing alcoholism because your body does really well as you drink and you continue to do that. So if you're someone or you know someone that as they drink, they become more party uh, manic or alert or whatever, those are the individuals you got to be careful about developing an alcohol, you know, problem, uh, certainly become an alcoholic, because if you don't have that gene, if you're unable to convert that, for instance, and I kind of looted it on already, you're going to feel very sick and very upset, even at a very small amount of alcohol, because so those aren't the individuals that are probably over consuming alcohol on a consistent basis because they just don't feel good. But if you're somebody that like, nah, man, the more I drink, the more I've become the partier and the more i become the life of the party, though you know, you need to, to, to evaluate that and, and, and realize that that's not necessarily a good thing that that can lead down the road of alcoholism and so forth. So one, a couple things can happen when we over consume alcohol. One is what I talked about that, that mood and that hype. act active serotonin, which makes people, sleepy, and lethargic in how they move, maybe start to slur their speech, and eventually they may uh, pass out. They may be that person on the couch that just passes out. You know. Having said that, another thing that can happen is somebody become blackout. Now, blackout is different than pass out. Blackout is that individual I just mentioned who's able to metabolize that, mes- that alcohol, continue to consume it, Stay alert, and, 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 and active, but because it's affecting the memory center of the brain, the hippocampus, they lose memory of what they're doing. And this is that classic, you know, you wake up the next morning and you're like, man, I remember doing this, this and this, but I don't remember anything after, you know, certain point. Or somebody comes to you and says, Hey, we need to really talk about, about what happened last night. And you really not having any clue about what it was that you did or didn't do or say or didn't say. That's kind of getting that blackout. So, again, there is a difference between blackout and pass out. And if you're somebody that's chronically getting blackout, that's another indicator that maybe you're over consuming alcohol. And that is something that you're going to want to really kind of monitor and decrease over time. Another interesting thing I thought uh, when it comes to brain chemistry around alcohol is how alcohol changes the relationship of what they call the HPA axis or the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. So the hypothalamus is this area of the brain kind of sits above the roof of the mouth then there's the pituitary gland that kind of, kind of this little small gland that kind of sticks out of the brain stem, if you will. And then of course you have the adrenal glands and the adrenal glands sit on top of our kidneys and they're responsible for stress. They're responsible for our response to, to, to outside endangerments or things that are affecting us, uh, the fight or flight response, if you will. Um, you may have heard of, um, epinephrine, or adrenaline, or, or uh, norepinephrine. Uh, these are all hormones released by the adrenal glands, including one called cortisol. And I've talked about cortisol before, but that is really kind of our stress response hormone. So as we drink, it changes that, that relationship of how those things communicate with each other. So what they found out is that those individuals who are chronic drinkers, again, someone who's drinking maybe one or two glasses of wine a night, or, you know, seven to 14 beers a week, or whatever that might be, that not only are you making some of that change while you're drinking, and again, don't look, you know, what people like about alcohol a lot of times is it kind of reduces that stress response, right? So, so, you know, you're, you're stressed out during the day and you're telling yourself, man, I just need to drink to relax. And certainly alcohol has that effect because what it does is it can make you feel less stress when, when we do drink. But what we also now know is that as a result of chronic drinking, again, 7 to 14 drinks per week, you also cause that cortisol level, that stress hormone, to rise at a baseline or, or be higher at a baseline when you're not drinking. In other words, chronic drinkers have a higher resting stress levels than those individuals who don't drink. And this might be why many of us who find ourselves drinking 7 to 14 drinks a week find ourselves quote unquote needing that drink at the end of the day or needing that drink in a stressful situation, or or just give me that glass of wine or man, I can't wait to have that beer later. It's because it has changed our physiology to believe or make our body perceive that that's what we need because we have this resting higher stress level as a result of the, the, the alcohol that we're consuming on um, a, a regular basis. So, Uh, I thought that was interesting because a lot of times, you know, we justify our need, or certainly I'm speaking from experience, justify our need for a drink because of our stress, of the way we feel. Yet what we're really doing is feeding that cycle as a result of drinking. And if we just stopped drinking for a period of time, that perceived level of stress will go down and the perceived quote unquote need for a drink will go down as well. And I think that's sometimes what stops people. They think to themselves, well, I can't imagine not having a drink because that's what keeps me sane at night. I can't imagine not having a drink because that's what keeps me, you know, feeling good at a party on the weekend. But what we're showing or what the science is showing is the reason you feel that way is because you are drinking and that if you stop the drinking, that those neurotransmitters, that adrenal stress response, all that will normalize to the point where alcohol is no longer maybe that answer that you need. So changes of overall alcohol use in the brain as just to sum that up is increased stress when we're not drinking, decrease in moods, mood and feeling and overall well-being just from a chronic standpoint, and a change in the neural circuitry that causes people to want to drink even more. So we kind of alluded to that when it comes to that. Now, alcoholism. So how do we know or who's at risk of becoming an alcoholic? We mentioned that that's not, you know, seven to 14 drinks a week. Now we're talking about much more than that. Maybe we're talking about 12 to 24 drinks per week on average. That's more of that alcoholism. There are some science that shows that some people may have a gene predisposition for it. Uh, we talked about that enzyme alcohol dehydrogenase. If you have a lot of that, and you're able to metabolize more alcohol, you are more at risk of becoming an alcoholic. If you're somebody like I mentioned already, who, when they drink, get more energetic and they can go on and on until they black out, and you're just kind of that life of the party type of person, you're more prone to to developing alcoholism. And then, thought this was interesting: the earlier you start drinking, the more likely you are to become an alcoholic. So if you're somebody that was introduced to alcohol, for instance, at age 10, 11, 12, versus somebody that maybe didn't get exposed to alcohol until later in life, maybe even till the age of 21, but certainly maybe later in the teenage years, you are more likely to be an alcoholic. And some of that has to do with the brain development and how we develop habits and memories and subconscious thinking, if you will. And so those individuals that are exposed to that alcohol too early or very young age seem to have more of an alcohol problem later in life as a result of that early exposure. So I thought that was super interesting. I was fortunate not to be exposed to it until later in life, but I guarantee it. I bet if I had been um, just with my personality and well, the way I already you know, think about alcohol or struggle with alcohol, I bet it would have been something I would have easily fallen into. And and I and I've had family members who who are who are alcoholics. So uh, I know that I would probably fall into that. Also they just reiterates why we need to protect our 2.0s and so forth from experimenting with alcohol too soon because unfortunately that uh, just sets them up for you know, a lifelong struggle, maybe with alcohol, if they get it too earlier. All right. So we talked about the effect of alcohol on the brain, which is huge, and certainly is enough to, to maybe, maybe make you consider whether or not alcohol is something that needs to be part of your lifestyle. But another area of the body that it really affects really long term detriment is our gut. There's something called the gut liver brain axis. how the brain and the gut talk to each other. There's a lot of science out there that kind of infers that our gut is essentially our second brain. A lot of neurotransmitters are actually produced in the gut. A lot of the signaling our brain gets is from the gut. It's a really powerful communication uh, system that goes from both areas. Uh, There's something called the vagus nerve, for instance, that kind of helps with that communication. But what we do understand about alcohol is that alcohol destroys the bacteria of the gut. So as most of us know, our gut is infused with billions and trillions of bacteria. That bacteria has its own ecosystem and life of its own. And that's really what sustains our life is the health of our gut. And when our gut's health is compromised, our overall health and well-being can be compromised as well. So when we drink, it destroys that lining, a, lining a, a small lining of cells across the whole membrane of our gut called the endothelium, and that protects foreign and toxic substances from getting into our bloodstream. So when I eat food and, and you break that food down, the, the, pro, the appropriate uh, molecules and elements pass through that endothelium into the bloodstream, which then circulates and goes to all the areas and becomes you know nutrition to our body. Well, when we drink alcohol, it irritates that barrier, if you will, and it creates holes in it. And you may have heard the term leaky gut. So what happens is instead of just the proper elements getting transferred through, you get these whole proteins or food particles and so you have these things called you know food intolerances and we think about allergies these are things that are getting into the bloodstream as a result of the gut not being intact so fundamentally speaking when we drink alcohol we destroy our gut which then allows the improper things to get in the bloodstream which then can create all types of problems and the number one thing that creates or is problematic in our body is inflammation. So you create this systemic inflammation as a result of drinking in the gut, which then can create inflammatory responses in the liver, which ultimately, which leads to liver cirrhosis. And so when you think of alcoholics, you think of the breakdown of the liver and it's really part of the process. The problem of the mechanism is they've destroyed their gut so much that some of that inflammation is going through it that way. Uh, we talked about crossing the blood-brain barrier and how alcohol does that. And so it creates actually our neurocir- circuits, if you will, to desire more alcohol. So again, we talked about this feedback loop of the more you drink, the more you want to drink more, the more you drink, the more, um, and, and that in order to turn off your quote-unquote body's desire for alcohol, you got to kind of quit it. And, and, and walk away from it. And that is what helps all that. Now, you can repair the gut. First and foremost thing, obviously, as we mentioned already, like the neurocircuits is we got to abstain from alcohol for a period of time to allow that uh, rest and restoration to occur. But you can use things like fermented foods, for instance, kefir, uh, kimchi, sauerkraut, yogurt, you can take things like probiotics. There's things out there that you can utilize to repopulate the gut, and would be an would be a strategy to do so. So, if you're somebody that's maybe telling yourself uh, I've maybe overconsumed in my life of alcohol, or I want to reduce it, or I want to create some healing properties in my life, you know, so that that would be one strategy I would do is making sure that you're populating the gut with good bacteria, maybe the use of pro- probiotic. Maybe the use of these fermented dairy sources to to do that, because fundamentally, you got to repair the gut to stop some of the damage of the alcohol in the system moving forward. Let's talk about hangover for a moment, um, because a lot of times when it comes to drinking, that's usually a a very common uh, result, unfortunately, and certainly things that we want to try to avoid most of the time. So if you're just a casual drinker and you're having a glass of wine with dinner or whatever, chances are you're not probably waking up with what we consider as a full blown hangover. But because of all those neuro changes and gut changes, your body definitely is being affected negatively, even with a single glass of wine or an alcoholic beverage or a beer or whatever. But there are instances when we over consume. And another way of saying hangover is Um, post alcohol consumption, malaise, you know, feeling crappy after a night of drinking or a day of drinking or whatever common symptoms, of course, are headaches and nausea, something called anxiety, anxiety after drinking, we're more anxious or more on pins and needles. When we wake up, even a couple days after drinking, research have shown, of course, malaise, feeling tired, fogginess, and so forth. So what causes those symptoms? And are there any things that you can do to, to mitigate the effects of alcohol and getting the hangover? Well, maybe. First and foremost, what you have to understand is when you consume alcohol, one of the things it does is disrupt your sleep. So even a small amount of alcohol can prevent your body or prevent you from diving deeper into that REM sleep, for instance, that restorative sleep, the dream sleep. And so one of the effects and one of the reasons you don't feel as great after a night of drinking or even having a couple drinks is because you can't get the same quality of sleep that you can when you don't drink. So first of all, every time you drink, your quality of sleep is going to be decreased. So that's one reason why you don't feel good is you're not getting that sleep, And if you really drink a lot, you're really kind of just in this pseudo sleep, if you will. You're not really sleeping at all. You're just kind of hypnotic in a comatose state, uh, you know, in your bed. And this is why you really kind of feel droggy and down the next day. When you drink, um, as a result, you might get, like we talked about, a headache. And the reason you get a headache is because of what they call vasoconstriction. So when you drink alcohol, initially, when you drink alcohol, you get what they call vasodilation or the blood vessels uh, expand, they get bigger. And that might lead to um, why some of the people feel good and more energetic and, and lively when they first start drinking. Well, eventually, though, we talked about how it has that negative effect and you get vasoconstriction. And this is when the blood vessels get really tight or smaller and they start to squeeze and you lose some of that blood flow and that oxygen, uh, distribution. And this is why people get those headaches. So, you know, this is why, um, people take vasodilators the next day, things like our blood thinners, things like Advil or Tylenol or aspirin. Um, this is why goody powders works pretty well is because it's got some of that aspirin in it and it can, uh, allow that blood flow to flow a little bit easier. Um, It's got some caffeine in it uh, that has been proven to kind of give you some of that alertness that people are looking for as a result uh, the next day. But in any case, that's kind of what's happening. That's why you're getting that headache. So things that you can do, obviously, to improve blood flow would be things would be something that um, you would want to do as well as. Protecting your gut, because we talked about what alcohol is doing is kind of destroying that gut, which is then creating this toxic overload throughout the system, which is creating inflammation, which is creating the way you feel crappy. So some of the lores as far as um what prevents hangovers or relieves hangover is having a meal, like eating something after you're already inebriated. So if you're drinking all night and you're like, man. Uh, I'm, you know, before you pass out, you decide to go to Denny's or some other restaurant or or burger or whatever to eat, because that's going to mitigate the effects of alcohol. That's not really true. Unfortunately, the alcohol has already been absorbed in your system. That's going to be problematic. Now, what it can do is, of course, um, give you some nutrition for the body to work with. It can mitigate the effects of any additional alcohol that you put in the body after that point. Um, Because we know that uh, if we have food in our system, it slows down the absorption of alcohol. But if you've already drank and you're already inebriated or or drunk, eating a big meal or whatever is not going to mitigate the effect of the hangover, unfortunately. Also, um, waking up the next morning and drinking more alcohol won't mitigate the effects of, of hangover. Uh, despite popular lore, you know, the classic hair of the dog, if you will. Although sometimes it can give you that temporary hit again. We talked about when we first drink, it does become vasodilated. We do get this um, serotonin uh, uptick where we feel better and whatever. So there could be a component of that when you do have that next morning, Bloody Mary or beer or whatever. But ultimately, you're just prolonging the crappiness you're gonna feel eventually, because eventually you're gonna come completely off of that. And you're just you're just delaying the inevitable, if you will. So drinking more alcohol really isn't gonna give you a benefit long term uh, the next day, as far as that. Taking a cold shower. Now that won't sober you up. Having said that, there are some unique information about the release of adrenaline or epinephrine and, and how that can mitigate how you feel or, or help the body clear alcohol, if you will. So when we take cold showers, for instance, it's kind of an adrenaline rush. And what that may do is stimulate your body's capability of metabolizing alcohol. So maybe you just get rid of it faster, but as far as kind of completely sobering you up, taking a cold shower, unfortunately is not going to do it for you. Now, I'm not saying you can't take a cold shower, but that could be something to do now. Disclaimer, having said that, alcohol in and of itself lowers your core body temperature. So um, probably jumping in a cold shower is not a big deal. But if you're going to go jump in a cold body of water, for instance, it may not be a good idea because you are more prone to hypothermia or some of the negative effects of getting too cold because your body's regulatory system, your hypothalamus, is being influenced by the alcohol or, or downregulated. So, and then certainly most of the problem that you're experiencing as a result of drinking too much and, and the effect of alcohol and, and, and um, hangover is dehydration and loss of electrolytes. So uh, one of the things obviously you can do is hydrate lots and lots um, supplement maybe with an electrolyte uh, mixture, uh, whether or not you do that the night before going, before going to bed or certainly the next morning, those can be things that can mitigate uh, the effects of a hangover. If you're really smart, you're drinking water throughout the, the time period of consuming alcohol, that you're not drinking alcoholic beverage after alcoholic beverage, that maybe you're putting water and other hydrating uh, liquids in your body as a result, or uh, in between those alcoholic beverages, as well as food, because we just talked about, although eating food after being drunk doesn't really help eating a large meal prior to drinking can be beneficial. So if you're really kind of strategizing, you know, a a night with alcohol use, some of the things to think about, one is you want to make sure you're hydrating yourself prior to drinking and during alcohol consumption, maybe use of an electrolyte that night, or certainly the next morning, eating something. Uh, prior to conge- or consuming alcohol to slow down the um, absorption in the bloodstream of, of the alcohol would all be uh, good things to do. And then maybe even doing things like probiotics or something to stimulate your gut health prior to alcohol would all be things that could be useful uh, in mitigating the effects of hangover, if you will. Uh, next time you, you choose to drink. Now, when you do choose to drink, are there better sources of alcohol to consume that maybe would produce less of a hangover or less of a detriment? Unfortunately, um, after looking at the research and kind of looking over things, there's really no such thing as healthy alcohol. That again is, I think, just uh, wishful thinking The industries of of these products do a good job of making it sound like a small amount is just fine. And in some instances, a small amount is better than no amount at all. And unfortunately, that just really isn't true. Uh, At the end of the day, alcohol is a poison. Let me repeat that. At the end of the day, alcohol is a poison. Every time you choose to put alcohol in your body, you are choosing to put poison in your body. Now, that may be a tolerable risk that you're willing to take because of all the other things that you like and associate with alcohol. Again, I'm not here to tell you whether or not you should drink or not. Um, But I do want to be very clear that there really isn't a healthy form of alcohol. Even organically grown red wine straight from France or whatever, um, unfortunately still has negative benefits in it, um, probably more so than positive benefits. And you should just know that when you choose to drink it and not kid yourself to pretend that you are doing something healthy as a result of drinking it. Of course, there's the term resveratrol that gets thrown up a lot um, when it comes to red wine. The, the reality is you, there's just not enough in it. Um, there's not enough resveratrol in wine to justify the amount of wine you would need to drink in order to get the benefit of the resveratrol quantity. Um, there's certainly just, it just doesn't work that way. Now, funny enough, there is a hierarchy of what alcohols produce the most um, prominent hangovers. And what they found is the amount of something called congeners in the alcohol is what correlates with how you feel or the propensity of getting a hangover. And then what they also know is. Uh, congeners, what they do is they destroy gut microbiota or the, the microbiome. So once again, it kind of goes back down to the gut. So alcohol substances that can wreak the most havoc on the gut tend to be the most problematic when it comes to propensity of getting a hangover. So at the very bottom of the list, things that's least likely to give you a hangover was beer. Actually, Um, so not that beer is healthy and there's other negative effects of drinking beer, especially if you're thinking about gluten and barley and some of the other things that can be problematic in somebody's uh, digestive system. But that was on the bottom, followed by vodka, gin, white wine, whiskey, rum and wine, red wine. And then at the top of the list um, was brandy. Brandy can give you the most problems. Uh, when it comes to hangovers. So again, take that with a, a, a grain of salt. A lot of times, or there is a common misconception that it's really the sugar uh, content in alcohol that creates a lot of the hangover. And that's just not true because uh, at the very bottom of this list, I didn't, I didn't mention it, you know, beer i, I, I mentioned, um, the very bottom of the list was like uh, ethanol and orange juice. That's what it was. Ethyl alcohol in orange juice. So why anybody would drink that, I don't know. But in other words, though, it's, it's very sugary content because of the orange juice, yet it was at the very bottom of producing a hangover the next day. So sugar correlation couldn't be the, the factor. Instead, like I mentioned, it's these congeners that disrupt gut microbiome. So if you choose to drink, maybe use uh, that hierarchy when it comes to making those decisions. All right, talk about tolerance real quick. Tolerance is the reduce or the reduction of the effect of alcohol uh, with repeated exposure of alcohol, basically. So the reduced effect with repeated exposure, and that's caused by neurotransmitter changes in brain due to toxicity of alcohol. So as we repetitively expose our neurotransmitters to alcohol, it changes the way the brain interprets that information because of the toxicity of alcohol. So we build up this tolerance. And so, you know, we mentioned acetaldehyde and when you get a repeated exposure Um, you get a change in chemicals of like GABA, dopamine, serotonin, and so forth. So the more we drink, the more we're making an effect on those neurotransmitters. And then we talked about that spike initially, that dopamine, for instance, um, motivation, energy, um, as well as uh, serotonin will spike initially with uh, alcohol use but then then reduces that overall wellness effect, if you will, on the back end. So when we drink we get this spike this feel good, feel great and then there's this like long uh, decrease on the back end of it kind of reversing in the opposite direction. And so when people uh, drink more and more, not only as I mentioned they're not getting that spike as much but that, that down, um, that down, uh, curve, if you will, becomes longer and longer and you get less and less of the benefit of drinking the more you drink. And so this is why, you know, when you first maybe are introduced to alcohol, you would able to get like this buzz and this amazing feeling after a single glass of wine or one cocktail or one beer, and yet, years later, or lots of alcohol beverages later, it takes you more and more to try to get that same effect. And as I mentioned already, unfortunately, you never, ever, ever get back to that same effect that you did that first time. And, that, you know, that, this is true in all substances that gets abused. You talk about other drugs, and for instance, it's always that first high, that first hit that people always try to recreate with subsequent highs and whatever, and they just never able to do it, or it requires much, much more of the same thing to try to emulate that previous one. That's what happens with drinking. And that's what builds up this tolerance. So as people chronically expose themselves to alcohol, they get less and less of effect of it because of the way the neurochemistry is being altered in the brain. They're not getting that same hit. And then that steady decline is getting longer and lower and so they're feeling worse and worse on the back end of drinking than they did when they first started drinking and of course the way to reset that um, as we mentioned already is to stop to abstain to choose not to drink for a while to kind of allow that to 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 reset some of that tolerance is thought to also come because you actually get an increase in that alcohol dehydrogenase uh which makes sense so again alcohol dehydrogenase is the converting enzyme in the liver ethyl ethanol to uh to uh, acetylaldehyde and um just like any physiological change in the body that tries to adapt to what you're doing to it you know it makes sense that your body would just assume that it needs to create more of that because you're putting more and more of that alcohol in the system. And so that also allows you to metabolize it faster, which then maybe can build to that, you know, that tolerance, uh, feeling or the, 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 the science of tolerance, uh, if you will, of why when you drink more, you're able to handle more down the road. So we talked about some of the negative effects of alcohol already. We talked about the brain chemistry. We talked about our gut microbiome. We talked about how, Alcohol changes the way we think, changes our mood, changes our overall baseline stress level, and which are all, in my opinion, very compelling reasons maybe to eliminate, if not limit, alcohol consumption um, on a consistent basis. But we also know that alcohol decreases the thickness of our brain decreases our cortical thickness and that scales with the mountain we drink. And we, and we've seen MRI imaging, CAT scan imaging of alcoholics and the destruction it has on the brain. So we know that brain health is vitally uh, affected with, with alcohol. And certainly the more alcohol we drink, the more susceptible our brain health is to negative effects. One of the things I found also very interesting is The fact that alcohol plays a role in gene expression and and how our genes are altered, this is staggering. I felt like this statistic I'm about to share with you was really eye-opening to me. And it was this. The more we drink, the more we can alter our genes. And one of the genes and one of the things that has a high propensity to being altered or being negatively affected with alcohol use is the risk of cancer, and more specifically, the risk of uh, breast cancer, and that's both for men and women. And what they found is there was an increase of four to thirteen percent, an increase in four to thirteen percent of, of of developing breast cancer per ten grams of alcohol consumed. So for every 10 grams of alcohol you consume, you raise your risk of breast cancer 4 to 13%. So what does 10 grams of alcohol look like? Well, basically, in America, 10 grams of alcohol is a single beer. It's a single shot of liquor. It's a single glass of wine. So if you think about that, every time you drink a glass of wine, every time you have a beer, every time you have a cocktail with one shot in it, you are increasing your risk of breast cancer 4 to 13%. Man, that is staggering. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to develop. It doesn't mean you will because you drank, but that should be enough to maybe really consider whether or not alcohol should be part of your life or not, or certainly how much should be part of your life. Because we know that, A, cancer is an epidemic in our society, and the breast cancer being one of the leading causes of cancer especially for females, but men can get breast cancers too. So don't act like, don't think because you're a man that this is less of a likelihood. Part of it is the estrogen dominance that alcohol can, can lead to. And so for men, we have other issues with estrogen dominance as well, which kind of brings me up to the idea of uh, alcohol and it affects hormones. So, We as men, we love testosterone, we want testosterone. Well, we also know, unfortunately, when we consume alcohol, it increases what they call the aromatization of testosterone into estrogen. So in other words, the more estrogen, or excuse me, alcohol we drink, the more of our testosterone gets turned into estrogen. this can develop, you know, things like man boobs, low libido, creates uh, more fat storage, this is why individuals, when they do quit drinking, for instance, they find themselves losing a lot of weight or, or, or finally breaking through some of the weight loss plateau is because that alcohol no longer is being aromatized or testosterone is no longer being ro- aromatized into estrogen. They're able to build more muscle and burn fat much more effectively. Obviously we can do things to mitigate alcohol's use, especially in, in cancer um, and risk, if you will. Um, we do know that the use of B vitamins like folate and B12 and some of those B complex vitamins would be something to consider as far as a supplementation standpoint from a health perspective. But anyway, I thought that was staggering because, because not only do we know that alcohol is not good for our brain. Um, it's not good for our gut. It's not good for our overall sense of well-being and, and wellness, but man, just to have that risk factor with our hormones losing testosterone and changing it to estrogen and more importantly, that risk of cancer and breast cancer are all things to really kind of put in our thought process when it comes to whether or not we want to choose to drink alcohol, which kind of leads me to this, you know, final question and, 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 and thought process is, should you drink alcohol? Is alcohol something you should consider as part of your lifestyle? And as I mentioned at the top of the show, I can't make that decision for you. I have no idea. Um, you have to take all this information to determine if it's, if it's something good for you, but maybe you may say, listen, there's enough information here to maybe make you never want to touch it again. And, and man, honestly, good, good for you. Kudos to you. Maybe some of you is like, man, I, I hear the risk. I have one life to live. Um, I'm going to live it out, and I'm going to do it in moderation. I'm going to do it. My own. great, good for you. My goal today was just simply sharing some of this information that I found, you know, fascinating. That I found was altering my own thought process around health and nutrition, and wanted to share it with you guys because I know this is an issue and a topic that many tax members think about, uh, that many people consider using um, in their own uh, lifestyle. And I wanted just to kind of bring some of that information to you. So as always, if you have questions, concerns, comments, whatever, please feel free to reach out to me. Uh, you can do so through the Nation Slack channel at Bones. You can reach out to me through Twitter at Tunis Hunt. Uh, you can um, uh, you know, leave a comment uh, on, the, on the show notes, uh, on, on the podcast, anything to kind of stimulate a conversation. I'm open to it. And I'd love to hear what you guys think. But uh, anyway, hope you guys are doing well. Um, You guys keep after it. Stay healthy. And until next time, this has been Bones guiding the packs of F3 Nation on their hunt for wellness. Thanks for listening to the Hunt for Wellness podcast. Please rate and review our show and be sure to share it with your F3 brothers. As always, we are looking for inspiring stories to share and health experts to interview. So if that's you, please reach out to me at bones at huntforwellness.com, on the nation's Slack at Bones, or Twitter at HFW Podcast. And until next time, this has been Bones guiding the packs of F3 Nation on their hunt for wellness.